Hey, I want to start by quoting Calvin. And uh, no, I don't mean the, the great um, reformer. I mean Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, even better, right? So one of his strips, if you've read Calvin and Hobbes, you know that he's got this incredible imagination. He's like the six-year-old boy. So one of these, you know, he's in this imagination mode, and he's the tail gunner in this, um, in this fighter plane. And uh, the, the pilot ahead says, says to him, enemy bandits at 2 o'clock. And uh, Calvin says, Roger, enemy bandits at 2 o'clock. Then you see him say, what do I do till then? Uh, <laughs> I want to bring that out because there are a lot of ways that uh, we can uh, get things confused when we get the wrong meaning of a word, wrong idea of a sentence, because it's used two different or three different ways sometimes, right? So that is especially true of the passage we're going to be looking at when we are told to not love the world. Because the way I grew up and the way I understand now, what that means are kind of two very different things. How are we to be in this world, to be engaged in the world, but not love it in the sense that he's talking about here? I originally was going to preach on the whole rest of chapter two, but once I got into this, I saw, no, there's too much here. And there, there's some things we, we want to go into deep so we, so we get this, because this is so foundational. We are Christians, we're in the world, but we're also not to love the world. How do we do that? That's what we're going to explore. So let's pray as we begin here, and we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Father, would you open up this word to us? Would you give myself the grace to be able to get it right, to understand what you are saying, and be able to explain that? Would you give us the grace, God? All of us here need this in different ways to different degrees, but we all need this. We all have ways that we love the world. And, uh, and those ways are things that we ask you to point us out, point out to us, Father, through your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I'm going to actually read this from here. I usually read the NIV, but we'll talk about uh, that here in just a minute. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world in its desires or lusts is, are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So I want to break this down, real simple outline here. Three parts. What does the Bible mean by world in this context? What does the Bible mean by not loving the world? Second, why? Why should we not love the world? And then third, how? How are we to avoid loving the world? And uh, that part is going to be very critical. doesn't do much good to say, okay, I'm not going to love the world if we don't know how, right? So what does the Bible mean by world? And, and this is where I was trying to go with that introduction. You see, the Bible actually uses the world, the term world, the Greek word is cosmos, in, in three different ways. And unless we know what John's talking about, we're going to get this all wrong. One of those ways just means the earth. So he talks about the creation 
of, of the earth. And they'll use that same word there. And another, the second way that the term world is used is the people of the earth. So very often, and this is, uh, you especially see this in John's writing, the world in this sense is an object of God's love. You might have heard of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we might be forgiven through him. Whoever believes in his name would be forgiven. So he tells us that God loved the world in that sense, and that's not the only place, of course. But then the third sense is what's meant here, and that means the value and thoughts of fallen mankind. So value and thoughts of fallen mankind. And the idea being that right now on this earth, there is operating a kingdom, there's operating a sphere of influence of which we were born into that is not directly God's doing, but is, all, but is under the control of the evil one. Now, that's a big claim. But if you read the New Testament, you're going to see that again and again. John, the book of or the Gospel of John, Jesus three times says some version of that the God of this age is Satan or the God of this world. In one place he calls him the God of this world, one calls, place he calls him the prince or the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2, chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. It says that we were that this present world now is under the operation of the prince of the power of the air. It goes on to say the spirit that's now still at work among the disobedient. So again and again, you find that there, there's kind of a paradox here. Ultimately, God has ultimate authority and providence, and his will will be done. But as part of that, as part of his greater plan, for a while, because of Adam and Eve's sin and the autonomy he gave them over the human race, for a while, during this present age, operating within humanity, a world system that is greatly influenced. By now, because we are still made in God's image, and because this world is good, that doesn't, it means that not everything, it just means that it's been thoroughly good and there are things in it that are bad. We'll come back to that idea. But basically, um, I put this little chart here in your bulletin. The world is ruled or hiddenly by the evil one. The nature of this is to seek independence from God, especially in seeking my own desire no matter the expense to other people. That's kind of the idea. So in this world, we, we seek independence from God. We value fulfilling one's own desires. We minimize or rationalize sin. And this world is passing away, as we'll talk about. But in the Father's kingdom, a kingdom ruled by Christ, in this kingdom, what we seek is union with God, not independence from God. In this kingdom, we value loving each other, as we just saw last week in, in the first part of, of chapter 2. If we're walking in the light, we have fellowship with God and with one another. And then it goes on to say, if we claim to be in the light but don't love our brothers, we're, we're self-deceived. So there's this union with God, but also union with those others in God. We seek holiness in this. We seek holiness because God is holy. We want to be joined to him and be like him. And then lastly, as we saw, last week he talked about 
the true light is, is dawning already. This kingdom is, is already here in some form. Let me give you a historical analogy, metaphor. No metaphor is perfect. All analogies live. But if you remember the time period when uh, the, the stories about Robin Hood were written, there is um, some sort of, of similar conflict of sovereignty going on. Prince John has taken over the day-to-day -day operations, but King Richard is actually the king, the rightful king of the throne. And King Richard has gone off. And if you know your history, you know that he went to the Crusades. He's captured on the way back. He's being held ransom for many years. And during that meantime, when he is gone, Prince John has basically taken over the throne, even though he has no rightful claim. And he has influence and set his policies in place. So in a similar way, there is a rightful ruler of the throne, God, and ultimately he will return and establish it. But right now we are in a kingdom in which the usurper has his way in many, in many situations. All right. So that's what the Bible means by the world. Now, the reason this is so important is because um, one of the tendencies in church that you see in church history has been to disengage from the world in the sense of withdrawing from, from culture, from politics, from society, from, you know, just basically becoming our own little enclave, becoming a hermit. Um, and I think that is the tendency that John is not endorsing here. In fact, we are to be those influencing. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. And that's, that's to be our role in this. So John is not saying we are to disengage from all influences in the world and all engagements in the world. And it's certainly not saying that we should hate the world in the sense of a glow. We should love this world that God made. Why? Because he loves it. He made it. He said it was good. And Christians should be the environmentalists. We should be known for caring about this world because we have a deeper reason for doing so than those outside the church. This is God's handiwork. He loves it. And you say, well, isn't he going to, doesn't say he's going to destroy it and take us away to heaven? Well, no, not really. It says the world will be First Peter talks about the world being destroyed and purified. But if you look in, in, a, in that same context, the analogy he uses, that he bases that on, is the flood. So what happens in the flood? Is the world destroyed? Well, in one sense, everything is redone, but it's the same earth. It's just purified and made better. And that's the analogy he uses. Remember, when God establishes his kingdom, our future life is going to be physical. It's going to be on this earth. The difference is that it will be purified and God himself will dwell with us. Revelation 21, what does he see? He says, now the kingdom of God is with man. He sees heaven coming down like a bride to the earth. And they speak of a new earth and a new heavens. So we are to, to love this, this earth, both in the sense of this globe and take care of it, but also in the sense of the people here. But he warns us here about a different kind of worldly love, and we're going to explore that a little bit more. Why should we not love the world? All right. Well, there's two reasons he gives. First, because the world's values are opposite of God's values, or very often opposite of God's values. Again, we're still made in God's image, so there is a common grace, and there is goodness in this world. 
But very often the values of the world are opposite of God's. James chapter 4, verse 17. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow. <laughs> okay, he's laying it out there, right? And, and the reason is because a lot of the things that the world values, especially its, its independence from God and its desires for self and all, all that that bring about, are directly opposite of the value of God's kingdom. And he explores that a little bit here, John does. So it says, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but of the world. And then he gives three descriptive phrases. And this is where we're going to depart from, um, I was going to say we're going to depart from the New International Version, the, the version I usually use. But actually, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So the New International Version has been revised through the years, but the... Um, the first edition of that, which I think wasn't revised, this part wasn't revised until 2013 or something, is described the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting about what he has and does. Now, the reason it's doing that is because the NIV, unlike the ESV and the King James, tries to get the meaning of a phrase rather than the exact words. And, and that's usually a good thing, but occasionally it they're going to interpret that in a way that we should probably uh, look more fully at the, at the words themselves. So what John literally says is, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and I, just, I put it, the false pride of life or the pride of life. So what does he mean by these things? Well, the first two are identical, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. In the terms of, of the word lust, it just means a strong desire. Used, that word is used 33 times in the New Testament. Three of those times it's positive, but all, all, the, all the others, the vast majority, are in a negative sense. It's a, it's a sinful desire, and that's obviously the case here. It's worth remembering that all the way since Augustine, there has been the teaching of the church that really our loves are disordered desires. And what did, what did he mean by that? He says all of our sins really come from, the, from getting our desires wrong. We are intended to desire God first, to love God first, to love each other second, and then love our, ourselves third. It's when we reverse the order of those things that our desires become sin. And I think there's a lot to that, right? The lust of the flesh, what does that mean? Well, I take that to mean because of the word and the, the way he uses this, that cravings of sinful man or, or cravings of our, of our body may be part of this. So excessive craving for, um, for things that our body desires. And in the first century world, probably he had first on his mind sexual cravings. Uh, the first century world was not a sexually pure place. And if you could read 1 Corinthians, you know the church was not immune to the temptations. Um, but probably also food and drink, things that the, the body wants. These things are not wrong, but they're wrong when they become this kind of craving that we sacrifice other good things for. They're wrong when we try to fulfill those outside of the bounds that God has given those. Lust of the flesh. So, okay, what are lust of the eyes? Well, again, I, I could be wrong, but I, I take this to mean 
that what he means here is not just our bodily desires that have gone wrong or that are not ordered rightly and moderated, but rather here when he talks about the lust of the eyes, he's thinking about things that we see and want. So it's almost like uh, there are natural bodily desires that we need to moderate, control, and direct, order according to the right kind of love. But then there's also this, I want more. I see what other people have. I see what I could have. I see these things, and I, I want that. I want more. I want more. It's kind of like Eve in the garden. She looked at the fruit, saw it was good for food, and desirous to the eyes, and, and she wanted that. Okay? And then the false pride of life. I put false pride instead of pride of life because the word has that connotation. It has the idea of someone who's proud of what they've achieved, but also what they have. So actually the word is the pride of bios, which means the the kind of life that we just kind of accumulate. And uh, and very often it's used as one's possessions or one's achievement in the New Testament. I I say it's false pride because the word John uses, it's kind of actually unusual. It's only used one other time uh, in the whole New Testament. So if, if you're reading John, John has the most simple vocabulary of any writer in, in the New Testament. So when I was in college and you, you, know, you begin to take Greek, you always start with 1 John. Why? Because it's easy. He doesn't use big words, except here he does. And so there's a reason he chose a, a big technical rare word. And it's because this word speaks of, of, of a boastfulness that's not based on reality. It speaks of a boastfulness of a person who boasts of all these things he has when he doesn't really have them, you know. So you ever see these people on Instagram or Facebook or something, and they, you know, pose in front, of a, in front of a jet or they pose in front of, you know, some luxury car and later you find out they didn't really have those things, you know, they were just posing. That's kind of the idea here. Someone who, who boasts about what they have. And, and it's not, I think, because he's saying that we never have those things, but because they're not that valuable. They're not really anything worth boasting about, is I think the idea. And so the, this pride of, you know what? I'm doing better than these people. I, I, look what I have. Look what I have achieved in my life. I work hard. I work smart. Very often in our culture, it's not so much boasting about our possessions as much as our achievements, our status, our career. And the person who's boasting this way in their heart, most of us, we're not crude enough to do it outside, right? But we're looking at other people and saying, well, you know, I've done better than them at least. We're evaluating ourselves against other people, and we forget what Paul says. By the Spirit of God, he says, who makes you to differ one from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That is in Romans chapter 11. That's false boasting. And that's what the world is. So he said the the essence of worldliness here is letting our bodily desires dominate what we do, first of all. Second, having this longing for for more things than what God has brought into our life and, and, and pushing ourselves towards that, craving those things, wanting those things. And then thirdly, being proud of ourselves. Devaluing other people because of their lack of achievements or possessions or, or status compared to us and elevating ourselves. That idea of the centered first living independently of God, that is the heart of worldliness. That is the heart of worldliness. 
See, you can, uh, you can be very religious and be worldly. The Pharisees were full of themselves, but they were very religious. They thought they were very distinct from the world, that Jesus, Jesus had a different opinion about them, and I'm going to take his over, over theirs. We can be very religious, we can be very good people, but at the same time have this heart that's all centered around me. Even my religious attainments can be part of what I want people to think of me. All right, so why should we not love the world? First, because the world's values are opposite of God's, at least very often. Secondly, because the world and its desires are passing away. As 2.8 put it, the darkness is passing and the true light is dawning. He uses what's interesting here. There are a couple different, two different words for life. One is bios, B-I-O-S, if you put the Greek letters into English. And basically it just means animal life. And that's, that's what he's talking about when he says the, the false pride of life. So we have a bios life right now. We have that within us. We have a bios life. It's very natural. It will last 70, 80, 90, 100 years. And, uh, and it's, it's in a similar sense, a little bit more refined uh, and obviously we're more intelligent than animals, but it's the same kind of life. But there is also a different kind of life that we are promised. And it's based on a different Greek word, zoe, Z-O-E, but the E is pronounced with the hard A there. And that kind of life is a gift. John 3.16, that we should have eternal life. Not eternal bios, eternal zoe. There's a great passage in 1 Timothy 6. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world, and that's pretty much us, guys, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our, for our enjoyment. So two things. He says, you don't need to not enjoy the world. God gave you things in this world to enjoy, but don't put your hope in them. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Listen to this. So they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, the kingdom of this world, there's a life, a bias kind of life, but the kingdom of God is an entirely different type of existence. And that's what he's talking about here. Maybe the best way to think of this, you ever had some day that was just perfect, and maybe you're relaxing on the beach, it's a beautiful sunset, everything's gone right that day, everything's been fulfilled, everybody in the family's gotten along, uh, There's, and, and you're just sitting back watching this beautiful sunset on the beach or something, and you look at your spouse or, or someone and say, you know, this is the life. That's kind of the idea. It's more of a, of a quality of, of rightness and, and human fulfillment rather than just the life that we have naturally. So this world, that bios life that we have is going to pass away. But if we are in Christ, we are promised a different and fuller kind of life. And that one is eternal. So the reason... We should not love the world. First of all, again, its values clash with God's values. But second, the world and its desires, that kind of life, is passing away. It's passing away. All right, last part then. 
How can we avoid loving the world? I'm going to give us five things here. Five things. How can we avoid loving the world? Now, when I was growing up in a very, very strict Baptist church, the answer was pretty, pretty clear. Uh, there's a whole list of things you don't do if you're not going to be in, be worldly. Uh, you don't wear long hair if you're a guy. You don't wear pants if you're a girl. You don't go to movie theaters. You don't even think about drinking any alcohol at all. You don't really watch TV. You don't play sports on Sunday. And, and there, why? Because it was preached. You don't want to be friends with the world, all right? Uh, we're going to go, I think, a little bit different direction, I'm trying to get to the root of the issue. How can we avoid loving the world first? Ask God to open your eyes. You see, we are worldly in ways that we don't see. And this week as I was working on this, God showed me a couple ways that I was worldly. I mean, I knew I was worldly, but in these particular ways, I didn't know. I didn't see it as much. And it was after thinking through this, God showed me these things. There's an old phrase, if you want, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. The idea being that something that's so pervasive and all around them, they just, they're not even going to have a category for it. And that may be us. We live in this present world, in this worldly system. And we need God to open our eyes because on our own, we're probably not going to see it. Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind by the, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. So we need God to begin renewing our minds. It's not just a matter of our will. Okay, I'm not going to do this or this or this. But it's rather asking God to show us and, and begin transforming our mind. Second, so first, ask God to open our eyes. Second, install a good filter. <laughs> install a good filter. What do I mean by this? Um, I, I saw a picture this week, and uh, I, I didn't bring it up here just because I, I didn't want to do the slides today. Um, but it was a picture of, of a car, I think it was a BMW, and they hadn't changed the oil in 100,000 miles, and they opened up this engine, and, and that oil basically looked like, uh, well, it was a lot, basically it looked like brown paste, okay? I mean, it, it was nasty. There was no viscosity to this. It, was, it wasn't a solid, but it was, it was much closer to a solid than a liquid at that point. Why? Because it didn't have a filter or the filter it had wasn't working anymore. You know, there are good and bad things in this world, right? And unless we have this filter, we're going to take all the things in from this world and it's going to create the sludge within us. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8. You know, Paul often has these lists of virtues and vices and, and usually they're from the Old Testament the you know, basic ideas, um, so they're, they're for us, but the, the terminology and categories are from the Old Testament, but not here. In Philippians 4 eight, when he says, think about these things, put our mind on these things, he's actually taking words and categories that would have been used by pagan Romans of his day, the pagan people of the, of the Roman Empire, where Paul is. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is admirable, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think upon these things. I love that because he's not saying that everything in the world, everything that his culture was producing was evil. But some of it was. 
And so what he's saying, if it really is true, if it really is admirable, if it really is honorable and excellent and worthy of praise, then put your mind on those things. But if not, avoid them. And I, I think of that because we live in a time we have, compared to past ages, almost unlimited options for entertainment or influences that we put in our mind. Do you know how many hours the average American spends with media? I've I read studies on this, and I've I read more than one because I'm like, no, nah, it can't be right. 11 to 12 hours. They tend to agree it's, it's within that, that range. I don't know how that's possible. I mean, what do they have this, the account of music on the, you know, it's played in the background when you're working or something, or, or maybe just some people really raising the average? 11 to 12 hours. And uh, out of those 11 or 12 hours, hopefully we're below average on this particular one. But maybe we should ask ourselves a hard question. How much time am I spending taking in entertainment or, or influence from the world as opposed to taking in from the scriptures or from prayer or some other way that God brings his values into my life? So I think we need to install a filter, not only in the quality, but also in the quantity. It's not saying that there are not wonderful, valuable things that the world produces, even in the entertainment industry. It's to say they're not all that way. And we need to install a filter. Uh, third, remember the paradox. Okay, what paradox am I talking about? The paradox that Jesus gave us in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Wow. I, I put that before us because we may feel, okay, if I don't do these things or, or engage in these worldly things, so I don't seek my own way, just do whatever I want, then I'm going to lose out on life. And Jesus says, no, the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. It's those who pursue their life their bias in this world, those are the ones who are going to lose out. And they're going to lose out twofold. Number one, because those things don't bring fulfillment. And number two, because those things will end. And that kind of life will end. So we have to remember the paradox. We're, we're never going to be lesser by giving ourselves to God more fully. And then four, seek the greater love. Seek the greater love. Uh, what do I mean by this? Well, I, I just find it so interesting that right after John talks about loving God and loving each other in the first part of chapter 2, now he says, don't love the world. It's almost as if he's saying that there are two kinds of competing love. There is a love for God, which is going to be expressed in this age, at least primarily in, in my seeking union with him, but also loving each other. But there's also this self-seeking love, independently of God, the love of the world. And those two are going to be mutually exclusive. We can't love the Father if we love the world. So the idea is that, ultimately, sin is not a lack of love. It's loving the wrong thing or loving the right thing in the wrong way. Augustine again, the essence of sin is disordered love. 
I was reading this, uh, actually I've got it down here. I was reading the story of a, of a man who's writing in Christianity Today. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very long. But he was writing about the struggle he had faced with lust. And so the name of it is The Enemy Within. And he goes on to talk about, he was a Christian man, he was committed. And yet he, he was going down the spiral, not only viewing things online, but, but magazines and uh, going to you know, stores, going to um, different clubs. And you know what kind of clubs I'm talking about here. And he was going down this downward spiral, and he talked about how nothing, it seemed like, would, would deliver him from that. You know, he tried accountability. He tried just, just trying hard. He tried praying more. tried asking God to deliver him. Nothing worked. He says, until I, I was reading this French author, and he talked about this idea that the way to win over lust was by meditating and seeking those words of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So then I, I realized as I was reading this guy, he didn't talk about all the bad things that the lust did. He didn't talk about all the self-control and all the shame and all, all the evil. Instead, he focused on what could be in my life that wasn't because I wasn't being pure. And he said that one thing changed him. Because it wasn't, okay, I need to move away from this because it's bad and I'm bad and I'm evil for doing this. No, there's something beautiful. There's something valuable. There's something that's worth everything ahead of me. And I'm going to give up everything as much as, as possible for that one thing. And that's the idea. If we are seeing that we are loving the world, that isn't just to become hermits and by our own self-effort just get away from everything. No, it's to love God more. It's to love God more and seek him. Last thing, last thing, look to the cross. Keep looking to the cross. How can we avoid loving the world? Well, let's, let's ask God to open our eyes. Let's install a good filter, ask him. Remember the paradox, uh, I'm not going to lose my life by, by doing this. Remember to seek the greater love, but then last, especially as I seek this greater love, to keep my eyes on the cross. Last verse we'll, I'm going to quote here, Galatians 6.14. May I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Through which, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul, Incredibly religious man, incredibly successful man. As he puts this in one of his, one of his letters, I was advancing beyond my own age. I had this world where I was this religious hotshot among the, the Jewish zealots in the Sanhedrin. I was this Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was, I was getting ahead. I was so zealous for what I believed and for my, my tribe that I persecuted the very church of God. It was on a trip when I was headed to Damascus to do that very thing, God struck me down with light, made me blind. And he realized 
Zedekiel spoke to him that this Jesus, who he'd viewed as this deluded, false Messiah and failure, was actually who he claimed to be, the Son of God and rightful Lord of the universe. When Paul got that, he understood that he'd been going 180 miles an hour in the exact wrong direction. And he says, when I think about the cross, it, it, it actually crucifies the world to me. The world becomes dead because the one who hung there, the one who hung there was despised by the world. The one who hung there was ashamed, was shamed by the world. The world and, and all its glorious people, Herod and Pilate and all the elite of, of the Jewish priesthood and all the political elite of Rome, they were the ones who crucified the Lord of the universe. And when I understood that, I'm like, what do worldly values and worldly achievements mean? Less than nothing. And I was crucified to the world that day. And the world's been crucified to me. And, and that's what I, I think I want to end us, end us, leave us with. There we go. When you look at that cross behind me or in that corner, Is it possible to really dwell upon that and still want to seek worldly pleasures and lusts, worldly types of success and acclaim, worldly types of independence and self-seeking apart from God? Is it really possible to look at that cross and not say, God, help me to love the people of this world, help me to love the world you've made, but help me to not love the part of the world system that's in opposition to you. Show me what that is. Open my eyes this week.